Kia ora, koa and O'Brien tuku ingoa, e kaurungi o Waituhi o Tamaki, no mai haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. Nobel Enchantments, supported by Platinum Bowl patrons Betsy and Michael Benjamin. Of 2021 Nobel Prize winning writer Abdul Razak Gurna's book, By the Sea, the Times said, Really, in a lifetime, can you open a book and find that reading it encapsulates the enchanting qualities of a love affair? One scarcely dares breathe while reading it for fear of breaking the enchantment. It's a sentiment that could be applied across all his fiction and essays, including Booker Shortlisted Paradise and most recent novel, Afterlives. Born in Zanzibar, which is now part of Tanzania, Gurner arrived in Britain as a refugee in 1967 and has said of his home country, In my mind, I live there. Professor Emeritus of English and Postcolonial Literatures at the University of Kent and the first black writer to receive the Nobel since Toni Morrison in 1993, his citation states that his win is due to his uncompromising and compassionate penetration of the effects of colonialism and the fates of the refugee in the gulf between cultures and continents. He joins Michelle Langston in conversation to reflect on a life's work. Tēnā koutou katoa, no mai haere mai ki te waitui o tāmaki, ko Michelle Langston toko ingoa. Welcome to A Noble Enchantment. This hour with Abdul Razak Gurna was made possible by the support of our Platinum Bold patrons, Betsy and Michael Benjamin. Before we begin, the festival would like to remind you that wearing masks during this session is encouraged and appreciated, and that if you feel unwell at any time, please make your way to the exit. There will be time for questions with the author at the end of the session. Please come forward to the microphones down the front, and would you please take a moment to check that your phones are on silent. Thank you. Abdul Razak Gurna was born in the Sultanate of Zanzibar in 1948. The violence and disruption of the Zanzibar Revolution in the mid-60s led to his exile to Britain at the age of 17. He began to write in his early 20s, became a school teacher, and eventually a professor of post-colonial literature at Kent University. He is the author of 10 books, as well as many essays and short stories. His breakthrough novel, Paradise, published in 1994, was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, and subsequently his critically acclaimed stories, including By the Sea and Desertion, have appeared on the shortlist for many, many literary prizes. His most recent novel is Afterlives, a sweeping tale of three intertwined lives set against the backdrop of the British and German conflict over East Africa in the First World War. In 2021, Abdul Razak Gurna was awarded the Nobel Prize for his body of work. The judges praised his uncompromising and passionate penetration of the effects of colonialism and the fate of the refugee in the gulf between cultures and continents. Of course, his books hold multitudes beyond this. They are exquisitely drawn examinations of memory and identity, power and kindness, courage and endurance. They ache with tenderness and shake with violence and upheaval. Would you please welcome Abdul Razak Gurna to the Auckland Writers' Festival.
Thank you. Thank you very much. It's very nice to see your face. Thank you so much for being with us. <laughs> um, it's a pleasure. Would you begin with a reading? I understand that you have chosen a passage from part three of your most recent work, Afterlives. Sure, no problem. So the, uh, the, the point here is uh, in the story, I mean, is that this uh, young man, his name is Hamza, is uh, going back to a town which he used to live when he was younger. He has survived the, uh, the conflict, the 1914-18 war uh, in what was then Deutsche Ostafrika, but is now Tanzania. In any case, he's coming back to this town. Uh, so the passage that I'm going to read describes this arrival. Their boat rounded the breakwater in evening twilight. And then Ahotha ordered the sail lowered as he made cautious approaching to harbor. The tide was out and he was not sure of the channels, he said. It was after the Kaskazi monsoon and in the period before the winds and currents turned southeasterly. Heavy currents at that time of year sometimes shifted the channels. His boat was heavily laden and he didn't want to get stuck on a sandbank or to hit something on the bottom. In the end, after debating the matter with his crew, he thought it was too dark to approach the quay in safety. So they dropped anchor in shallow water and waited for morning. There were lights on ashore and a few people moving about on the quay. Their elongated shadows stretched out ahead and behind them in the gloom. Beyond the quayside warehouses, the town sprawled and the sky was amber from the glow of the setting sun. Further to the right, the dimly lit shoreline road shaped away towards the headland, which after a while ran out to the darkness of the country. Hamza remembered that from the time before, how the road ran past the house where he lived, and how then it narrowed down to the tight aperture that opened out into the interior. Out to sea, the sky filled with stars and a huge moon began to rise illuminating the heaving water beyond the breakwater and the frothing crest of the reef in the distance. As the moon rose higher, it submerged the whole world in its unearthly glow, turning the warehouses and the quayside and the boats tied up alongside into insubstantial silhouettes of themselves. By then, the Nahoda and his three crew members had eaten their meager ration of rice and salt fish which they shared with him, and settled themselves to rest, stretching out in a tight cluster on the sacks of millet and lentils, which were their cargo. So he lay close to, listening to their conversation and their profanities and their gloomy homesick songs while the boat pitched with the surge of the incoming tide. They fell asleep almost in unison their breaths drawing deeply a few times and then suddenly falling silent. After the momentary stillness which followed their voices, the boat resumed its agonized creaking as the sea tugged and pulled at it in its unrest. He lay on his good side, but he could not prevent the pain from returning. So 
he drew back from the cluster of men and put some distance between them. After a while, he moved away completely for fear of making them restless with his sleeplessness. He wedged himself into a space that provided some distracting discomfort from his aches, and somehow he fell asleep. Thank you. Uh, I'm really glad that you chose a passage that includes the sea, because across the time that I've been reading your books and rereading some of them, uh, even when, say, as in paradise, they take us into the deep interior of Africa, I think of the Indian Ocean, that incredible body of water, and that archipelago nestled there. Could you talk about your relationship to the sea? Yeah, well, uh, <clears throat> can't really have a relationship see it's such a huge monster <laughs> but we lived uh, where i was born uh, was right uh, right by the docks uh, my my father's business which was uh, really trading in uh, the products of the sea he, he sold fish um, and from the house uh, you could see ships arriving and ships leaving and the, the sea was always with us was always there and we are a very small island, really. Uh, um, you could go from one end of the island to the other from you know, within a few hours, and all surrounded by, by the ocean. So in, in a physical sense, we're very aware, always aware of the sea, we're not far from it. But of course, also historically, uh, and culturally, and in all sorts of other, other ways, uh, the seas, uh, present in the sense of the um, people travel back and forth across the ocean regularly and have done so for centuries, facilitated, I should say, by the wonderful monsoon winds, which was regular and happened at more or less the uh, same time every year, uh, three months this way, three months that way, guarantee you'll get there, come back, uh, unless, of course, you are lucky. Um, the both, both the Indian Ocean itself, I mean, there's a presence, but also the cultures on the littoral of the Indian Ocean are also always present. Mm. Um, uh, as far away as I suppose the, um, you know, what we call Southeast Asia, mm. that is to say Malay, um, et cetera, but more, more likely be uh, India, South Arabia, Somalia, the Horn of Africa, that sort of thing, coming and going throughout the centuries. Um, so religion, cuisine, languages, and so on, were also exchanged, delivered one way or the other. Mm. I'm glad that you talked about the, mu am I saying it right, musim? Musim? Musim, musim. Musim, sorry. Yeah, we, know what we, we know what we mean. The, that rhythm of those winds changing, coming in and out, and that rhythm of the tide, that ebb and flow, is a rhythm that felt to me at least, very present in your books, are you conscious of that? You know, there's a real shift of energy with those, with that coming in and leaving again, and it happens at crucial points in quite a lot of your novels, that change of the season, that change of the weather takes energy away with it or brings something new. Yeah, and I guess there's a lot of journeying in what I write about, yeah. But, mm. um, and um, I'm glad it feels that way. That makes me sound much cleverer than I probably <laughs> <laughs> But, but certainly there's a lot of back and forth, people traveling a lot. And that would have been not only true 
of that particular location, but of course it's also now true of our times mm -hmm. uh, that people do do that much more so than, uh, than before. I guess it's because travel is easier, but I think also the, the world has become smaller in a way. We know much more about each other mm -hmm. um, and try to reach places that we desire and feel uh, anchoring for. Mm -hmm. I would imagine, well, I what I'd like to ask, as a little boy, as a child growing up in Zanzibar, did those arrivals and those ships coming in bring with them stories from all over the world? Well, they, they brought the bodies. <laughs> when they came during the Muslim, because as I said, we lived just by the docks there, because uh, of many of the people who lived in that part of the town uh, were involved in this coming, this transoceanic trade in one way or another. But when these ships arrived, they're mostly sailing ships mm. uh, when I was a child. Um, there were one or two that might have a, you know, a motor of some kind, but mostly they were sailing ships uh, and not huge ships. Uh, and there would, there, would, there would be so many of them in the harbor, in the particular part of the harbor that was put aside for them so that they didn't get in the way of other, other shipping. Uh, they would be so, they would be just packed. It would be like a, like a, uh, as if you're walking on, on boards rather than walking on ships that are in the water. There's just so many of them. But many of them, many of people working on these boats or the sailors in these boats uh, would just step out of their boats and find anywhere to sleep in town. So you, you would find, you know, various uh, spaces in the town turn into open air camps, as it were. People would be, Make, making their tea and sitting there and sleeping there and whatever. And sure, they brought their stories, if you could understand their language, mm. because you know, we're people um, from different parts of the ocean. Uh, but we also learned a lot from just watching what they, what they were doing, what they, uh, as kids, and you follow them around and you know, tease them, probably. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you would see the things that they're selling, the, what, 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 what excited them about uh, the food or the fruit or what they the site so and and uh, you would love also love watching them get into fights with each other which they regularly did as well yeah so it was a, it was such an eventful time when they were there mm. um, and I, I think actually in years gone by it was also scary because um, there weren't there was uh, a rumor as well that as they're getting ready to leave many of these people might be people going back to India or Arabia or Somalia that sometimes they would uh, kidnap little children and take them with them, especially, of course, little girl children. Mm. So when it came near the end of this period, the parents would make sure their children are safe. While these, after all, they were just rough, tough sailors, a lot of them, not, not sort of, uh, you know, musicians and artists or whatever. Um, so there was another side to it, another side to this uh, wonderful, uh, um, intrusion, I suppose, mm -hmm. from across the ocean. The other side was that there were a rough lot. Your dad, you said that your dad was a trader, and you know, there are many, many characters throughout your books who trade. Um, what was, can you talk a little bit about, about growing up in your family? Because I know, you know, I know that your dad was a trader and that being in that harbour and watching that it has informed a huge amount of the way that you write, but I also wonder, 
family dynamics are so um, beautifully drawn in your books, and they're hilarious. They're often um, beleaguered with, you know, a lot of drama and stress and tension. What was your family like? What was your sort of immediate family environment <laughs> like? Well, we lived in a big house with several families living together. That is, um, was an extended family uh, thing. Um, at some point, there must have been at least four different families sharing uh, spaces and so on. It seemed all right. I mean, you know, uh, I was a happy childhood as, uh, going uh, to school. It's not fun being a child sometimes, you know, because people insist on combing your hair and making you wear clothes you don't want to wear and um, make you eat food you don't want to eat. But aside from that, it was fine. Uh, I guess the thing I remember most about being a small child was not so much what was happening at home as uh, the way in which uh, life was out in the streets, you know, with other small children playing in the streets. It was safe enough for, for that. Um, it wasn't heavy traffic or anything like that. So, you know, quite a lot of the time uh, growing up was uh, you'd be told to get out of the house and go and play. And that would be fine. And then going to school. I loved school. Yeah. And it was when I was old enough to go to school, then I was fine. Because that's it. School shaped my day in a way. Mm. Um, um, I remember it as a fine, good, happy time, yeah. When the Zanzibar revolution occurred, the schools closed, didn't they? The school, well, there are two, two stages. Immediately after the revolution, all the teachers um, in the secondary level anyway, the higher level, uh, were mostly European. Mm. This is one of the things that the colonial education was thought itself clever about. That, um, school teachers at secondary level were mostly uh, English or Scottish or uh, occasionally um, Rhodesian or something like that. Very few of them were Zanzibaris. I don't know if they thought, they thought maybe Zanzibaris couldn't teach at secondary level. I don't know. In any case, that was how it was. Mm. So after the revolution, uh, all the European teachers were asked to leave. So schools were closed for about four months or so because there was nobody to teach mm. in those schools. When they reopened, our teachers were people who came from, because our, our new government uh, aligned itself with what was then the Soviet bloc, uh, before, of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union. So we had fraternal assistance from um, the GDR, East Germany, from Czechoslovakia, as it then was, from China, from, from Russia, some of whom were teachers, uh, some of whom some, well, sent a staff into the hospitals and the Russians contributed a few old tanks, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we continued our education until the end of secondary school. And then the government said, right, no further. You don't need any more education. So stop at the, at the completion of secondary and we're all sent out to work uh, in what was then called national service, which was really basically more or less unpaid labor. I think just a tiny handful uh, seven, seven, like seven pounds a month, that kind of thing. So that was one of the impulses for me to leave really, because uh, I was, I was, I was actually 18 when I left. I know you said 17. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Sure yeah. No problem. No problem. 
so by the time I was uh, that age, and I was thinking, what am I going to do? And when you're 18, you were reckless and stupid enough to do almost anything. So I got myself together and left. There's a really beautiful quote in your Nobel speech um, about writing and about writing at school with your school fellows. Um, and you talk about that you all sat down to write in the straight line of innocence. I wanted to ask you at what point you felt your writing diverge and, and crisscross a loop like cartography, like the map that your work is, you know, across the globe and in so many places. At what point did you feel that expansion in your writing? Was it once you had left, once you had arrived in Britain? Oh, it was much later than that. Uh, I think when I, um, when in those early years in, in, in the UK, and in fact, quite a while in the UK, I was still trying to process um, well, what, what I'd left behind on the one hand, and also coming to terms with uh, living a stranger's life in the UK. Mm. Um, I think that came, that idea, or rather that interest in um, both in journeys and travel and uh, distances and memory and so on really came uh, with um, possibly without when I was writing Dotty, which would have been my third novel. Um, and I guess it wasn't so concerned with what had happened to uh, to me or what or my particular experiences entirely. But now my interest was uh, was broader. I was thinking in terms of migrations and dislocations and so on, not just the processes or the history or the place I came from. And I was also by then uh, I was actually teaching a course uh, at the university about migration at the time I, I was. Um, completing Dotty, I guess one preceded the other. It was it was the it was the interest in those ideas that made me teach the course rather than the other way around. Mm. Um, and I just went on really from there, thinking about uh, uh, how people live in one place and live in another place in their imagination, um, how memory works in that way, how we never forget, how things are never over. Um, yeah, so the, the, those sorts of themes and ideas you mentioned in your very kind introduction about uh, the various things my work tries to get into, to probe, to reflect on. So it's not only memory, it's not only locations and dislocations, it's also a lot of other things. What do you do with, uh, let's say, a family in which modern, a modern migrant family, in which perhaps one of the parents is from elsewhere and is tormented by something that he can't speak about. Mm. And um, here the, the next generation are tormented by something else that they actually don't feel the parents would understand. So all of these uh, dynamics, if you like, all of these uh, things that happen within even small spaces, a family, a home, mm. um, and also the wider spaces and the wider problems and the wider movements of people. Mm. All, this is our reality. And speaking about memory, um, you've remarked that distance from your place of birth can be both liberating and distorting. And I, I wondered if you could talk about that in relation to the desire to write the truth and record the truth faithfully, 
and the elusiveness of memory, what we selectively remember or forget, what a narrative is that we may absorb or let go of. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? Hmm. Well, you make it seem like you choose what we can hold on to, what we can let go. My experience is that it's memory that's got hold of me, mm. uh, rather than I have got hold of memory. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think uh, I was saying in that uh, Nobel uh, talk when I was thinking of, or rather remarking on this, I was saying sometimes it's perhaps easier to, to live with difficulties when they're shared. Um, when you're in the in the in that particular space in which all of you are experiencing whatever trauma or difficulty it might be, uh, it might be injustice or it might be deprivation. Uh, I don't I don't think it's just because you're together with other people and you're sharing, but because you're seeing other people suffering as well. You know, it, it somehow seems more bearable. Mm. I think one of the things that then happens is that as you you escape this particular uh, oppression, go somewhere else and begin to think about it. Now coming to memory, begin to think about it, begin to reflect on it and so on. It's not quite so easy to bear uh, these things because you are somehow in isolation and you're somehow safe. Um, and so there are two sides to it. One is that you remember what had happened and maybe relive it in some respects but also you know that others are still actually living it. Mm. Uh, and the unavoidable uh, guilt, I suppose, um, of that knowledge, mm. I am sure is an, ex an experience of people who, of refugees or asylum seekers, or simply people who migrate from, from a, a position of uh, deprivation or difficulty. Mm. And yet it was really difficult for you when you arrived in Britain, wasn't it? from what I understand, being a stranger, being exposed to quite a lot of hostility at the time that you arrived. So it's kind of that survivor guilt, isn't it? Arriving in a new place with a new opportunity, but finding it hard, feeling bad for finding it hard, given what you know your family are continuing to endure. Is that what you mean? I mean, something, yeah, along those lines, because it wasn't, it wasn't just all bad. No. So it, it wasn't, uh, like I mentioned, I was 18. Um, I hadn't traveled very much before. Um, everything is new. It's like an adventure, as well as all those other things, as well as the, you know, the, I didn't even know about the hostility, really. I didn't understand it. I wasn't even aware that these people didn't like me or anything like that. It took a little while to realize um, that I wasn't a welcome stranger. I, in fact, some of the words that were words of abuse, as it were, that were um, that I heard, I, I'd never heard before, so I didn't even know there were words used. And I had to ask, what does it, what does "morg" mean, uh, and things like that. Anyway, so it wasn't all kind of a continuous encounter with whatever, and it didn't even then. It didn't all come at once. This feeling I'm describing of saying, uh, "What have I, what have I left behind? What have I lost?" So these are, and these are things that came slowly. And I imagine if you're older, the, that feeling would be even stronger. You know, if you are, say, an adult with, with your family left behind, uh, some, I, was, I was still quite young, and so it was, there was enough to distract me 
in England in, in terms of what there was to learn and what there was to do, the new freedoms that I was describing, I was uh, encountering. Um, so I, could, I knew I was in a better place than uh, the place before. Mm. When you talk about home, I love what you said about, you know, where you live in your imagination, whereas where you live physically. Many of your characters are displaced or looking for a new home or making a new home after huge trauma. And I wanted to ask you now, at the age that you are and where you live, what is home? Where is home? Are there two of them? Is there Britain and Zanzibar? Or where does it live inside you? Well, home means different things. Um, of course, uh, where where I live and where I have lived for uh, most of my life is here in the, in the UK. And in fact, most of it here in Canterbury. Um, so this un, un, you know, unequivocally is my home. But uh, home also, when we say home, we also mean uh, like where do you belong in some other way? So where, where do you come from? It, it's almost a, it's almost a, uh, a horrible question is that yeah. people seem to be afraid to say, where do you come from? Because it means you, you don't belong here. It outdoes uh, you. Exactly. Yeah, you're, you're a foreigner. Uh, I am. I am a foreigner. Um, but this is also my home because I've lived here for this length of time. I've contributed to it. I've uh, married children, our grandchildren. For them, there is no other possibility. I do have another possibility. Saying, actually, I also have another home. Um, I think if you were to ask me, sort of straight out, bluntly, "Where's your home?" I'd say Zanzibar. Mm. But then I wouldn't want you to be to say, "Well, in that case, go back home," <laughs> no, because no. this this is also my home, and multiple homes is a possibility that. Um, we recognize, generally speaking, I'm sure uh, people in New Zealand uh, recognize, uh, many people in New Zealand recognize that they're New Zealanders, but they're also Dutch, or they're also something else, or whatever. Well, it's the same for, for people uh, like me. Home is um, both Zanzibar and the UK. Mm. Were you worried when you arrived in Britain that you would forget your home? That you would forget Zanzibar? No, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even think anything like that. Yeah. No, I think, um, I think when, when you're in those circumstances, I imagine, certainly in my experience, when I was in those circumstances, I was thinking of my destination. Um, and I think this is one of the tragedies, in a way, or at least this is one of the difficulties that I, I see all these uh, young people risking everything uh, to risking their lives, which is everything in the end, uh, to cross the seas, to cross the deserts, to get to, to Europe. And, um, and I think, uh, do you realize what you're leaving behind? Because mm. I think when you're in those circumstances, you don't think like that. You're only thinking about how can I get to wherever it is. Um, and I know for sure that within days of uh, arriving, uh, in, in, in the UK, in the circumstances that we did, which really was a kind of uh, exit visa type thing. That's it. You're not coming back. Goodbye. Mm -hmm. um, um, and I, I think within a few days, I was thinking, 
um, what, what, what have I lost? What have I done? How much of writing, at least the, the beginning then, was a way to hold on and to examine those questions, to, you know, to hold on tightly? Yeah, it wasn't consciously that. It wasn't a conscious attempt to say, I must write to hold on to, the, to these things that I, I remember. Or, <clears throat> although I didn't make notes to myself along those lines, but they were not intended for publication. Kind mm. of notes. It was really just to, as you say, to hold on to something. I used to find myself doing things like uh, um, walking from home to school. And, and just writing down street names and all this kind of thing. But that was a different thing from, from, um, from what became the writing later. So there were various processes, which were sort of like uh, of remembering things, or sometimes I used to think I'll forget. I'll forget um, people's names, or I'll forget uh, how people look and stuff. It's not true. You don't forget a thing, uh, really. Uh, but that fear. I think what became writing, that is to say, what became the, the novel and so on, was a much deeper, uh, in time, a much deeper attempt to understand uh, things that uh, used to happen, um, how families lived, mm. um, how uh, certain unkindnesses would come back, not necessarily uh, on that had been carried out on me, but that I may have witnessed or heard about. Um, trying to remember and understand and reflect on why things were became as they did for us. I think I think it's so there were two sides. One was thinking mm. about thinking about what had been lost and then also thinking about this experience of uh, of living as a stranger. Yeah. So I guess those were my first two novels in their separate ways. Mm. Uh, one uh, writing about uh, well it's called memory of departure. So kind of <laughs> explains yeah. itself. Uh, and the second was the experience of, of, of living in, in the UK. And I call that Pilgrim's Way. It's a way of saying, because as you know, Canterbury was the destination for pilgrimage um, since the murder of Thomas Beckett, um, perhaps even earlier, but certainly since then. Uh, but now we have the kind of the, as well, the modern pilgrim figure who's coming from a much further away than London. Mm. And beginning to write, you, you said in your Nobel speech, which I come back to often because I just love it so much, but you said that a desire grew to write in refusal of the self-assured summaries of people who despised and belittled us. And I would like to talk about that and about colonialism and the complications of writing against colonialism while living in a country that clings to it and what the complexity of that is like for you. I, I suppose I'm thinking particularly, and I think about it a lot at the moment, of By the Sea. Your novel that was written in 2002, you know, it's, it's more than 20 years old, but its prescience is undeniable. And, you know, since that time, Britain's been through several waves of awful immigration restrictions, Brexit's happened. That conversation at the beginning of the book that the asylum seeker Saleh Omar has with um, Kevin Elderman, the customs and immigration officer, it still reads now as shocking and 
that I, I just, the resonance of that book goes on. It goes on in new ways, in ways that are even worse now. And I, I want to ask what that is like for you as a writer who has spent four decades writing about these things to be living where you are in times like these. Sorry, that's so, such a big question, and I, I'm sorry it's so convoluted. No, no, I don't, I don't think I got lost. I think I'm still there. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> what's it, what is it like to live in a place like this? Well, uh, um, and talking about those things, uh, yeah. those particular subjects and topics. It, it, I suppose it's coming to uh, knowledge about um, about how um, colonialism or empire figures in the in the popular imagination. Mm. It, it was only possible to have an understanding of that by living here, really, um, because uh, when I was growing up. And I don't know what, how I would have been thinking if I was uh, uh, an adult uh, now thinking about colonialism and living in Zanzibar. I don't know. Mm. You can't rewind the um, time or the clock or whatever. I only know that I, I came to understand a great deal more about um, how colonialism and empire is conceived by having a better sense of uh, its, the popular knowledge of it here. And of course, then reading, uh, studying became something that I was interested enough to, to make into my uh, discipline, if you like, in my professional life, uh, in teaching and so on. I guess uh, being in the presence of its consequences, living in a country post-imperial nation like this, uh, makes it, puts it more in the foreground, I think, mm. uh, trying to understand it, trying to uh, look back to some extent to its literature, as well as to how that is interpreted now, looking at the way in which its, it's, uh, its public life and ceremonies and so on, keep turning back to the memory of this, but also denying that it's doing so. Um, there are so many intriguing and uh, interesting dimensions to this uh, post-colonial nation, which does not think of itself as a post-colonial nation. It's extraordinary to me as well. There's a moment in By the Sea where one of the main characters, Latif Mahmoud, who is an academic living in London, is called a grinning blackamoor by a man on the street as he exits the tube to go to his work. And it's really shocking to, to read that, but then quite recently, in the last couple of years, there was a member of the royal family that wore a blackamoor brooch to a Christmas lunch. And mm. uh, so what you say about that, people living in denial of what that empiricism is and denying that it happens, but gradually inching backwards towards it, it feels like, is a really uncomfortable thing to hold, isn't it? Yeah. Well, shall we say it's teetering? Yeah. rather than inching towards it. <laughs> uh, so what they, what, they, what they are now describing as culture wars or this kind of thing uh, here in this country, I think primarily what is behind it is a sort of defensiveness about the, these sorts of uh, um, ugly moments in, in the history 
of uh, empire. Strangely enough, some of the defenders uh, of this defensiveness are themselves uh, imperial subjects. That is to say, you know, like Richie Sunak or one of these people who have become now members of the British establishment or Bridget Bertel or whoever. Um, it, it seems at times as if they are the champions of, of, of this defensive uh, imperial position at times. Mm-hmm. without it being spoken in those terms. Anyway, all this is uh, what makes it uh, almost imperative to keep talking about these things. Yeah. And I think a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of, uh, as it were, native uh, citizens of the UK, as opposed to displaced ones like me, uh, are also coming to terms with this. They're not all sort of being defensive and whatever. A lot of people are trying to, to understand and to come to terms and to move things on. Uh, but of course, scholars have been doing this as well. So it's mm. really, we're talking about a, 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 at a popular level, there is still plenty of work to do. I would like to, gosh, we're running out of time so swiftly. I'd like to come back to the passage that you read from Afterlives at the beginning of the session. And I might have this wrong, but am I right in thinking that that was the first part of Afterlives that you wrote? Yes, that was definitely the first uh, paragraph that I wrote, more or less like that. Uh, uh, we had, I uh, had been offered uh, a period of um, a fellowship at uh, Stellenbosch University at the beginning of 2018. I just retired. And I, I loved traveling to South Africa. This was an opportunity to spend several months in South Africa. And I thought I was just about to begin writing up life at that point. So the first morning when I went into that uh, study, that office that they gave me in the Institute of Advanced Study in Stellenbosch, I sat down at my computer and I wrote that paragraph that I read to you. So that was the beginning. Uh, Do you often begin in the middle or the end? Or when you begin, I suppose you don't know where it belongs because I think, I know that you've, Afterlives feels like something of a sequel or a companion novel to Paradise and from what I understand, the last part of Paradise with the recruitment of the local men to the Ascari was the first part that you wrote of that book. I, I suppose what I'm asking, what I'm really interested in is if you could talk about where so you... So I start at the end and then come back. <laughs> yeah, well, like how, where, do you, where does the story come from? Where does it begin? I, I'm so interested yeah. in, in, in how it appears in that way because it's, it's, sort of, it's quite back to front. Well, maybe yeah, not. Well, uh, it's not it's not a general practice that I start at the end of the work backwards. As it happened, it happened in Paradise um, because I actually wrote that ending of Paradise, which is a recruitment drive, mm-hmm. uh, something like 1984 in my notebook. Oh wow! I just wrote. I remember. I remember uh, sitting. I had a, a spare hour. I was teaching, um, not at the university. Then I wasn't at the university. Uh, and I had a spare hour, so I sat and wrote this paragraph, which is that recruitment drive, as I say, or more than paragraph, like a page and a half, maybe. But I was then working on something else. I was actually working on Dottie at that point. So I just had to put it aside. I'll deal with this later. And um, I had just come back from Zanzibar for the first time since leaving in 1967. It had been possible to return, but I had just returned. And I guess my mind was full of uh, 
what I had seen and heard and so on. Anyway, it just stayed there in the notebook for ages. Um, but when I got to the point of having finished uh, uh, Paradise, sorry, um, Dotty, and then I started working at the university, and I went on a, a study leave trip for several weeks, along traveling along the east coast of Africa. Um, at the time, thinking of writing an essay or uh, a nonfiction book. But when I came back, my mind was so full of this that I thought, right, I'll go back to to what I was writing there, Paradise. But by this time, so much had happened that it was much more interesting to me to, to think about how is it that that young man, Yusuf, gets to the point where he does such a thing as joining the colonial army. So that's why it ends up being the end of the mm. novel rather than... So the novel then became all about growing up in the early stages of colonialism in our part of the world. Uh, and the ending becomes that. In any case, I really didn't know enough. My interest was to write about the history of the conflict, of the war. And at that point, I really just didn't know enough about it. And I still had this other idea about uh, first encounters. Anyway, 1994, by 1994, the book was published, and I had other things to write. So I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, and wrote until 200, sorry, 2018, some 20-something years later. And I, oh, but all of this time I was thinking one day I will go back to what, what would have happened to somebody like that boy who, who joins up? What might have happened to all those other people who, for whatever reason, whether out of uh, misjudgment or coercion or just desire for adventure, joined these colonial armies? My uncle did as well, actually. That's not that war, the Second World War. He joined the King's African Rifles as an 18-year-old. Wow. It always seemed to me, why, why did people join these col uh, colonial armies whose, whose purpose and function was to actually oppress, if not them, then their neighbours? So they're connected, sure, but it wasn't connected in the sense of continuing the story, but more still thinking about thinking about um, people who joined up and why they might have done so and what might have happened to them. Hamza shares much in common with Yusuf, who's the protagonist in Paradise, who at the end of the novel goes away to join. Yusuf has been sold as a trader to cover his father's debts. They're not the same character but they could be, they could be. And when I first read Afterlives, I thought, oh, I was so delighted to see him again and immediately thought, oh, how, why has his name changed? But they're not the same, but their similarities and the thread of their lives are deliberate, aren't they? Yeah, I was, I was uh, saying, I don't want to write a sequel. No. <laughs> That's what I said to myself. I don't want to write a sequel, but, but Yusuf probably was not unique. In, in that action. So that was my thinking. He was probably not unique, but many other people of the same sort of age under similar sorts of circumstances might have joined up out of desperation um, and then knew they'd made a mistake. So that was, but the other, other thing for me that was important was that uh, Hamza returns as traumatized and injured. So I, I because one of the concerns of afterlives, that's why it's called afterlives, is uh, what the capacity, I think, that people have 
to retrieve something from trauma, mm. to have, as it were, a second life. Mm. Uh, so I, I wanted an, an injured man to come back. I'm, I wanted to talk about trauma, just for something light, um, towards the end of the session. Um, I've got a couple of minutes before I'll open to uh, audience questions I haven't forgotten. But I read something once um, about a like in an article about trauma that talked about when you suffer from a severe traumatic episode, whether it's abuse or violence or, or, or exile, whatever may have befallen you, that a part of you can atrophy and seize at the age that, that it occurred to you. Um, you know, arrested development, I guess, is another way of putting it. And I'm, I'm, I'm so interested in the way that you deal with trauma. How do you, when you write about it, how do you, see it. Do you agree with that? Do you think that there is a part of us that gets stuck firm in the place where those things happened, or are we able to overcome it? Many of your characters do in really quiet, triumphant ways, but I, I just wonder what you think about that, because I think it's, I find that really interesting. Yes, indeed, yeah. It, uh, I, I'm sure that uh, uh, people have uh, become arrested by experience mm. in that way. Um, uh, I don't want to sound sort of like to condescend to that because sometimes you can't tell whether people become hard mm -hmm. as a result of uh, bad experiences or whether they would have been hard anyway uh, because it's something to do with their emotional makeup. Uh, but I expect that some of, the, some of the tyrannical ways within families that we don't always know about because um, you're not there to witness everything uh, are as a result of something like that, a traumatic experience, which cannot be, um, shall we say, uh, processed. Um, that not everybody is either capable or wants to reflect on those things, but would rather maybe push them aside and ignore them or suppress them or whatever. Mm. Um, and I do try to write about that in one of my books, The Last Gift, for example, yeah. which is about the uh, the way in which such secrets, if you like, suppressing uh, traumatic events like that, and the corrupting force that they have within, certainly within small closed relationships like a family. Like, yeah. uh, so so you, children are aware there's something not being spoken about. Um, and the parents are not speaking about it, or at least one of the parents not speaking about it because he thinks he's doing the kind thing trying to ignore this, whatever, this memory, this bad thing, the shame of it and so on. So I'm sure it's true what you're saying. I'm sure it is correct that, uh, that if we don't uh, allow trauma as well to, to surface and to, to examine it or to reflect on it or to seek help, I suppose, if, if necessary. But I'm not talking about trauma, always talking about trauma like that. Trauma doesn't have to be some big wall wound or something like mm. that. It can also be uh, small matters, shame, for yeah. example, uh, for uh, a past event. Um, but yes, I will agree with that, that uh, it does perhaps harden some sinews. Mm. I have to stop asking you questions, and I've got at least 20 more, because uh, it's time to open up the session to the audience. Um, if anyone would like to ask a question, it's really hard to see. Maybe we could bring the lights up just slightly. Oh, there you are. Um, there are microphone stands down the front. 
if you come forward, we can alternate between the two if there are any questions. And if there aren't, I've got heaps more. Hello. Uh, kia ora. Assalamu alaikum. Um, I had the... Alaikum salam. I, I had the joy of living in uh, Dar es Salaam for a, a few years of my life when I was younger. And I went to a museum at Bagamoyo, um, which was the headquarters of German East Africa, I think. And there's a... Uh, uh, there's some uniforms and some artefacts from a German officer uh, that are in that museum uh, where he says that they were the only battalion of the German army that marched back through the Brandenburg gates in Berlin undefeated after the Deutsch-Ostafrika War, uh, which involved King's African rifles and South African regiments and all sorts of others. I wonder what you might say to that German officer if you had a chance to talk to him. <laughs> well, I'd say that's, a, that's, that, that's an interesting way of putting it. In a way, it's true. That is to say, they, they, they managed to evade uh, defeat, but in the end, they surrendered. So in that sense, it's not true. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, because uh, of the nature of that conflict, at least so far as the, the way the Schutztruppe conducted it, um, in a, as a guerrilla war, they actually didn't know that uh, the German state had surrendered for three weeks. They were still fighting the war, three weeks beyond the armistice day. Uh, but then after that, they, they had to surrender and give up their arms. But there was some impact so on the local no, people. it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for your work. Is there, Thank you. Are there any more questions? quite a shy audience. All right then, I've got more questions for you. I want to talk about landscape and environment, place and its connection to story, because the evocation of landscape in your work is really extraordinary and the fineness of detail, whether it's the back room of a shop or the banks of a river is so acutely rendered. Um, I, I want to talk about how environment and story work for you and how one informs the other, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, I did mention that I spent uh, some weeks traveling in, in East Africa in the 1989, was mm. before I started to write Paradise. And that was a tremendous experience uh, and gave me a sense. I had traveled before, of course, various parts of the, the youth. But this was going back as a, as a you know, curious, open-eyed adult. Uh, and seeing the place with a writer's eye, I suppose. Um, and I, 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 some of those things stayed with me for a long, long time, not only the writing of Paradise, but also writing as well. Mm. And the other interesting thing about memory is that it's amazing what, when you put your mind to it, what comes back. So a holiday when you're 10 years old, and suddenly you, know, you have a memory of like the waterfall in uh, Paradise, for example, yeah. that uh, the boy uh, comes across. I remember that when I went to Moshi for the first time when I was 10 years old and having that experience, and it just came back. Uh, and I hadn't seen it again since then, uh, un until subsequently, after writing Paradise, uh, we went traveling in Moshi, and I said, that's the waterfall that I remember. <laughs> and it was a lot smaller, of course, than I remember it as a child. As a child, <laughs> I remember sense. it as a huge, as a huge waterfall. <laughs> but so things things stay in that way, uh, or landscape stays in that way. But but also there is 
um, possibility of just imagining. Mm. Uh, I mean, this is what writers can do. You can imagine, you can look at a picture, say, um, and uh, you can put yourself into that location, into that uh, landscape and that environment. And it comes true, you feel it, you understand it, and therefore you can write it. Does it live in your body environment? Some of the way that you describe things, like, because I think memory, lives in our body, we physically inhabit it, and, and something is awakened or tapped into. Do those environments mm. and those landscapes in Africa live inside you, do you think? Yeah, yeah, they do. Uh, I suppose, especially at the moment of writing, because at the moment of writing, I, I have to actually be there, mm. uh, enter the experience as fully as I can in order to, to understand it and to evoke it and so on. Um, but yes, I guess so. I mean, I don't get hot. Something like that. <laughs> no, that's not and what I meant. Feel, <laughs> um, it does feel real. I, I have to um, bring the session to a close now. I'm so sorry. I, I could just honestly talk to you for hours. Um, I would just like to remind the audience that all of Abdul Razak's works, or most of them, are available in the festival bookshop in the foyer. Um, would you please join me in thanking Abdul Razak Gurna for his time this evening? Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> Thank you very much. Noraira, tina koto, tina koto, tina koto katoa. I hope you have a very good day where you are. Tinakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi Otamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews, and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud, and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.